Now on the fourth base of mindfulness, it's concerning the content of mind, and as it concerns content of mind, we need to check up against certain aspects of the Buddha's teaching. And the first aspect, which I have mentioned, is the Noble Eightfold Path. Now, in the Noble Eightfold Path, I started out with right effort, because I thought it was extremely important to take that first. But it isn't the first step on the Noble Eightfold Path at all. It is the sixth step. But the Noble Eightfold Path should not be construed to be a ladder where we have to climb up step after step. It should more to be thought of as an eight-lane highway on which we drive along sometimes in one lane and sometimes in another. Whichever one seems to be particularly slow, that's the one we need to make a bit of um, effort on. So, right effort is also the first step of the concentration part, which concerns right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. And in their own aspects, like the one on sila, the one on moral conduct, the one on concentration, and the one on wisdom, they do follow each other in a progression, which means that right effort is necessary for right mindfulness. We won't be able to be mindful without effort. The effort which is in the beginning necessary for mindfulness is something as if one has to pick up a heavy weight from the ground and lift it. And of course, because it's heavy, it drops again. And one has to lift it again. And it drops again. And the whole thing is up and down all the time. And then, of course, it becomes tedious and one forgets the whole thing because maybe it isn't even necessary. Well, if one continues to meditate and continues to practice mindfulness, one day it doesn't have any weight to it at all. It just is, like everything else. It just is. And as it is, it just continues. I have already spoken about three bases, and the fourth base of mindfulness is now part of this Noble Eightfold Path. The last one, the right concentration, Sama Samadhi, are the jhanas, the meditative absorption. And we have so far got to one, two, and three. We will eventually come to the others, But at this point in time, we'll concern ourselves with the other aspects of the Noble Eightfold Path, namely the very first one, right view. Now, right view is the first step on the wisdom part, inside wisdom part of the Noble Eightfold Path. And here it is also mentioned as a very first step on the Noble Eightfold Path. 
So here we see a difference from the usual um, ordering of the steps where we usually in all the discourses the Buddha talks about calm first and then insight. But here we have right view first. But again we can look upon this maybe as an eight-lane highway which is leading to a certain destination. And we have to have right view to get started on this journey. And if we take the journey sensibly and well and are not deterred by the obstacles which we ourselves have put up, then we will reach a destination which has complete right view. So right view is necessary to get started and it is also the end result. Now in order to get started we have to have several things within our right view. And actually there is a discourse of the Buddha which is called Samaditi which means right view which talks about nothing else except right view. And there are 16 right views mentioned and I'll go through all of them. But first, there are two which I'd like to mention which are not in that particular progression of 16 but which are necessary in order to get started on any spiritual endeavor. The right view that one needs to do something other than just live a material life. That the material life which is concerned with the everyday mentality of getting and getting rid of, of wanting and resisting, that that just isn't good enough, that just isn't a fulfillment of a human life, in fact it's a waste of a good human life, it's a waste of time. We might live for 70 years or more, six score and ten or more, And if we never get this right view that there's something else to be done other than just trying to get as much as we can and in the process as much pleasantly, pleasant things as we can, we're wasting our time. So the right view to get us started. And then there has to be a right view about karma, cause and effect that we don't think that everything that's happening to us is happening to us because of outside influences which have nothing to do with our inner life, which have nothing to do with our own self-made causes, but are sort of a lottery game where we might have unfortunately caught the short end of the stick and then feel sorry for ourselves because that's what happened. Now that's the wrong view. The right view is that we understand that whatever's happening in our lives is self-made. Whether we know it or not makes no difference. Now, obviously, we never can be able to 
make the connection of all the things that are happening to us to all the causes that we have put into motion. We won't be able to find all that. The Buddha said, karma is so intricate like a spider's web. It's impossible to find the beginning or end of the thread. It's all interwoven. But sometimes we can find cause and effect. We can find a cause that we have put into motion and see the effect quite clearly, whether it's good or bad. In both cases, we may be able to see the effect quite clearly. If we have practiced well, we will see the effect quite clearly. And if we haven't practiced, we will also see the effect quite clearly if we have some self-honesty about ourselves. That's also an if. Most people are very hard put to being self-honest. It's not such an easy thing to do. Once we have become totally accepting of the fact that karma and vipaka, which means the intention and the resultant, are strictly ours and nobody else's, then we'll probably practice. Because we won't rely on anyone else and we will not shift blame to outside sources. We know it's all ours. Some of it may have been from former times which we can't remember, Some of it is just lost in our memory from this life. It doesn't really matter. It's all happening to us for no other reason than that we ourselves have created it. Now when we get that view and coupled with the view that material life is not an answer to being human, then we will start on the path. And that is the first step of having right view to get us going. Now then, the Buddha has described 16 right views as opposed to 62 wrong views. Now I'm not going to discuss the wrong views because we've got them anyway. And the more we discuss them, the more we might get interested in them. So it's not very profitable. But I will certainly discuss the 16 right views. And they also invite us to not only inquire into them, but to know them so well that they become our own. The first one that the Buddha mentions is the profitable and the unprofitable. That we have a distinction of what is beneficial, profitable, very often called profitable, it's also called sometimes skillful and sometimes wholesome. All of that means the same thing. If it's wholesome, it's profitable, it's also skillful. And it's also beneficial. All of these words are very often just translations of the same thing, kusala, in Pali. 
and just different English translations. We know that anything which is generated by personal wanting can't be profitable, can't be skillful. Not only does it support the ego illusion, but it also generates anxiety, whether we're going to get it and then keep it, but it also separates us from others. If I want it, obviously I don't want somebody else to get it. So there we have already the beginning of aggression. There we have already the beginning of one-upmanship. There we have the beginning of the whole misery that besets the human race. Now, we can distinguish between what is profitable and unprofitable by just using that criteria. If I want it, just wanting it for myself, then those unprofitable un, um, aspects are embedded in that. If it's supposed to be beneficial, wholesome, skillful, it must be connected with giving and letting go. If it's connected with those two, it must be right. Now you can check that out for yourself. You see, the thing is that the Buddha did not want anyone to believe what he said. But he wanted everyone who took the pains to listen to try that out for themselves. Because only then does the Dhamma become yours. Until then, it belongs to the Buddha, to the book it's written in, or to the person who's talking about it. When you want to make it yours, you've got to try it out and see whether it works. If it doesn't, forget it. The Buddha was so sure of his teaching that he invited everyone to just give it a go. And if it didn't work for him or her, to just forget the whole thing. There's no instance where somebody actually tried it and did not find it helpful and beneficial. There's no instance recorded. There are instances recorded many times of people listening and saying, oh, no, I don't want to do that, and walking off. Many instances like that. Laziness, opinionated, knowing better, all those things that all of us know about. Nobody is immune to this. But trying it out, so distinguish between that which is giving and letting go and that which is wanting for myself. And see also the difference in feeling which is generated within from the two different ways of 
acting in one's mind. The feeling which is generated from wanting is anxiety. The feeling which is generated from giving, giving oneself and letting go is one of freedom. One doesn't have to try very hard to find this out. One can do that any moment of the day. It's very simple, but one's got to do it. And the difference between that is not thinking about it, doing it. Most people think about such things, but they don't do them. While I'm talking to you, the only thing you can do is think about it. But during the day, you can actually do it. So the first step of right view is that we distinguish between profitable and unprofitable, and as we distinguish between the two, that we constantly veer toward that which is skillful, wholesome, and beneficial. Skillful and wholesome, beneficial for whom? For our own purity, for our own purification. One person that has attained purity can purify a whole area around them. One person that has a great deal of impurity will pollute the whole area around them. If we are interested in the non-pollution of our environment, that's the way to do it. Purify ourselves. And the non-pollution of our environment is bound to follow. Cause and effect. There is nothing else. Now, that's the very first step of right view, one which is quite easily seen and understood, I should think. The next step is quite interesting. It's called the nutriment, that we can see that we are constantly on in the search for nutriment which doesn't always have to be physical food, but often is. That's the first of the nutriments, physical food. The Buddha gave a rather horrid uh, uh, symbol or synonym for this search for food. He compared it to a couple that are lost in the desert with their small child and they are starving to death and the parents eventually eat the small child. Now the reason he shows it like this in this horrible fashion is to show how strong our craving is. The craving for survival. The craving to be. The bhava tanha, the craving to be. Now that's the first thing, the physical food. The second thing is sense contact. If there's nothing to see, nothing to hear, nothing to taste, nothing to smell, nothing to touch, at least we'll think about something. And should we ever be able not to do that, 
not think we would actually get to a peaceful state. But we won't do that. We are looking for mental food. And because we're looking for this sense contact, which is the second one of the food, there is constant agitation. The Buddha compared this to a cow which had been skinned and skinned alive and the insects would sit on the raw flesh constantly like the flies in Australia and naturally this is a terrible irritation so terrible maybe one can't even imagine this is our sense contact that terrible irritation now none of this should be believed all of it should be practiced and found out for oneself as long as we think that our sense contacts are not only our God-given right and uh, are going to bring us something pleasant and if we just handle it clever enough we'll get rid of the unpleasantness we just keep the pleasant contact so long we can't see the actual pathway. The sense contacts, and I've mentioned that before, are strictly meant for our ability to survive as long as we have this craving to be. The irritation which arises out of them needs to be seen with a great deal of mindfulness. It's quite often that if one has been meditating for quite a longer period of time and then gets back into the city and has been meditating well and gets back into the city after that, the city appears to be almost like a hell realm. There's that much sense contact in the city. It's impinging on all one's nerve ends it's uh, not only the sounds it's also the smells and the sights and sometimes even touch there's so much of everything that a meditator who has been meditating for some time will probably want to get back into the forest as quickly as possible cities are not exactly wonderful places to be in for people who are concerned with the everyday marketplace mentality they're fine but for people who would like to get out of that they are presenting exactly what the Buddha said as cows skinned alive and on the on this raw flesh are constant the constant irritation of insects sitting on it but this is our search for nutriment we want the input because we want the mind to have something to nibble on now obviously if we were just having the sense input and wouldn't react to it with the mind the mind wouldn't have to nibble on it but we don't do that we don't just see the seen and hear the heard and cognize the cognized we make stories about it we say in the first instance it's a flower and we like it and in the second instance we might say this is a truck and we don't like it so we have constant reaction to seeing and hearing 
And so this contact that we make with all our senses is the food that the mind gets. And if we don't watch the kind of food that we give our mind, we will obviously eat poison. There's plenty of poison around. Everybody carries it around with them. And therefore, it is extremely important to guard the senses so that the poisonous input is minimized. What is poisonous input? Poisonous input is that which tempts us and induces us to have either greed or hate, wanting or not wanting. So therefore we should be even more careful with the sense contact food than we are with physical food. Now we all have very definite ideas about physical food what we would like to eat, should eat, must eat, how much of it, what kind, and so forth. All right, now translate the same thing to sense contact. How much of it, which one, which one's healthy, which one is energy producing. If we don't do that, we're not practicing. Crossing one's legs on a pillow is not practicing. I think I'll probably say that every day because I have said it already many times. We must translate what we do with the body to what we do with the mind. Then we will see how it relates and how we can actually be careful with it. Now the third one of the nutriments are our mental emotional states states of mind and they are of course a reaction they are reacting to that which has gone before the contact food which we have taken in and these states of mind would have compared to a person, the state of mind is this person in the middle and there are two huge uh, bouncers on right and left of this person and pulling this person towards um, a pit full of fire and trying to throw that person into the fire. The bouncer on the red, uh, right is the good karma and the bouncer on the left is the bad karma because we are thinking we are doing it we are the person that has these states because they have already come through the action we are making some karma good or bad and are falling again into the fire pit of existence is that clear? doesn't matter whether it's good or bad it's always the fire pit of existence where we're getting burned no matter what. Now these mental emotional states which now arise, have arisen, are the nutriment for our ego. Because we know that we are thinking like this or feeling like that. 
And because they nourish the ego, they are karma-making, and with that karma-making of good or bad, whether good or bad, we, ha- we continue our rounds of existence. The nourishment of the ego is often accomplished through dislike of others. Because it gives one the sense of being a little bit better. One hasn't found anything in oneself to be good. One hasn't looked far enough and hasn't found anything to really be proud of or to be happy about or to accept and uh, uh, appreciate in oneself. So one resorts to the last possibility, disliking somebody else because they are obviously worse. And since oneself has already found that one is pretty bad now, that one being worse is very helpful. one of our usual absurdities but it's well 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 uh, practiced it's one of the usual parlor games the games people play now these three uh, similes or symbolisms that the Buddha used should show us how very unfortunate our ego belief is no matter what it is, how we wish to nourish it, we nourish it, of course, through all these food items, whether they are physical, whether they are the uh, sense contact, or whether they are the mental emotional states arising out of that, our ego is being nourished. And as we nourish it, if we overnourish it, it gets very fat. And if we undernourish it, it gets very thin. But it doesn't matter, because whether it's a thin one or a fat one, it's still an ego. And it just looks a little different. It's like a thin person and a fat person. It doesn't make any difference to the person. So we usually try to nourish it just enough so that we don't have too much controversy with others, because that's not very pleasant, and we do like our things pleasant, but just enough so that we can have a, play, uh, a foundation to stand on. Not too much controversy, but a foundation to stand on. That's our nutriment, that's the nourishment we need. Now, the fourth one of those is consciousness. And in this case, we're not talking about sense consciousness because that is already taken care of with the sense contact, but that's our consciousness level. In our consciousness level, we have choices. If we use a consciousness level, which is on a very low and, let's say, very ordinary, everyday plane, then obviously that kind of level brings us to very often to unprofitable states. But if we, after we've had this nourishment, recognize what is happening, actually know why we are searching for sense contact, 
and why we're having these mental emotional reactions we actually have a consciousness that understands we're on the path the consciousness has to be the one that tells us what's going on within how to use it for Dhamma practice now if we do that we have the nourishment the nutriment of Dhamma practice obviously that is still the nutriment for a person but it takes time from a person to a non-person it doesn't happen overnight so that consciousness which creates within us the Dhamma awareness is the one we should try to cultivate when we see these contacts that we make when we see the food of all levels those three levels then we can understand what is the right view about them now the right view will bring our consciousness to a level where the concentration in meditation is based on that kind of insight and therefore becomes much easier any kind of foundation we can find whether it is through insight or through purification of emotion either way there will be foundations for concentration and without concentration there will never be the uh, results that this practice is to bring so this is the second right view first one was profitable and unprofitable and second one is seeing these nutriments in the right way understanding what we're doing now both of them or all of them I should say all of these right views require an objective observance of oneself if one just sits there and eats and just goes out and looks that's not objective that's subjective that's what the whole world does and that's why the world looks as it does there's no blame attached to it it just is that's just the way it is but if we want to be on a level on a higher level of understanding and have the ability of inner peace no matter what happens around us then the objectivity has to come in and we must see ourselves for what we really are and as we see ourselves imbibing the food from these different levels we can see that this is only our craving to be the more we understand that the more we can be objective to ourselves the nearer we come to the results of this practice the third one the third right view is called the four noble truths now the four noble truths the fourth one is the noble eightfold path which we are discussing and the first two are the ones that we're concerned with here the first one that there is dukkha in all existence and that it is created 
out of only one cause, namely craving, wanting. And this dukkha has to be seen and understood. If we don't see and understand dukkha as it is, we, we do not have the springboard for the practice. Because why should we practice? If dukkha wasn't all pervading, if we still know of loop, or think we know of loopholes, of escape um, mechanisms, if we think we know those, why should we practice? And this is the problem that most people have. They think after the course that there are other escape mechanisms that are easily as good and much easier to practice. So one stops. It happens over and over again. And the escape mechanisms and the loopholes which we look for are always connected with pleasant feelings. Well, we don't actually pay attention to the fact that pleasant feeling is very impermanent. So only when we see dukkha straight, then do we have a reason to practice. Now in this sequence of explanations, dukkha is related to our five khandas, our five aggregates, the five parts of which we consist. And the first one, of course, is the body. The Buddha said about the body that it doesn't get cancer, it is a cancer. And that statement should make one think. Why did he say a thing like that? And I'll leave it up to you to think about that yourself. There is no sense in having statements without self-examination. And if you don't think it's true, that's fine. No problem. We have an exaggerated intoxication with this body. Everybody does until they've seen the truth. Now, it does not mean that we should have an abhorrence of this body. Both are extremes which are not the middle path. The middle path of the Buddha is a totally balanced view, totally objective. There is a body. And how did it come about? through craving, of course. How else? So, this intoxication which we have makes us think that the body is so important. It mustn't be too fat. It mustn't be too thin. It mustn't be too brown. It mustn't be too white. It mustn't be too wrinkled. It mustn't be too tall. It mustn't be too short. 
It mustn't have hair that is hanging in lanky. It mustn't have hair that's all curly. It's got to be just so. And all the ideas, and then it gets painted to be like this and painted to be like that, or it gets totally dis, dis, um, dis, uh, gets totally abused because one is disinterested in it. I mean, none of this has any bearing on the reality. The body is a mechanism which creates constant problems. Constant. Imagine just for a moment that we would be assembled here without bodies, just minds. Nobody would have to shift and wiggle around on the seat because there's no body that wiggles around and has to shift. Nobody would have to cook, wash dishes, go shopping, peel potatoes, get rid of the rubbish, make compost, pull weeds. Practically everything we do would be eliminated. All we'd have to do is sit here and get enlightened. <laughs> Quite a pleasant idea, isn't it? But no, there's this body. And it needs all this attention, constant attention. It gets hungry and thirsty and tired and dirty and gets pains here and pains there and it has to have certain things like uh, medicines or powders and, and it's constantly something. So with all that, we can maybe get an idea why the Buddha said it is a cancer. A cancer that spreads because we make more bodies. We get kids. <laughs> and even more than one usually. So, and you can tell also at night the dukkha that this body has. I mean, there we are, fast asleep, and what do we do? We move from one side to the other, because the body can't lie in the same place for any length of time. It starts hurting, and so it signals that fact to the mind, and although the mind is, at that time, not conscious, it still has its subconscious working, otherwise it couldn't dream, and so it gets the body to move because it just isn't comfortable. Not even six or seven hours on a good mattress without any sickness, it still isn't comfortable. So it doesn't have anything really to recommend it, except that it creates dukkha. And that's a great recommendation, because the Buddha said, on this level of the human being, we have enough dukkha to get us to practice. But it isn't so bad that we don't have our nice moments so that we don't have to get depressed about it. So the body's dukkha is a great teacher. And sometimes people who have terminal illnesses actually use it that way. Of course, others lament and grieve and don't want to die. But some do use it in that way to see what there really is.
So that's one of the khandas. I'll use the Pali word khanda, it's shorter. Which actually means groups, heaps, heaps. Now you can tell that the body is a heap, can't you? I mean, it sits here like a heap. But uh, not only that, it's made up of bits and pieces. Right? So we've got a heap, and we call that me, this heap. But it's all made up of bits and pieces. So that's the first one of the five. And then we have the four of the mind, which I have already mentioned, but in this connection, they need to be mentioned again, because here the Buddha's words are, and they're actually spoken by Sariputta, his um, right-hand disciple, in that particular discourse. But, of course, he got that teaching from the Buddha. Because here it is said that these four khandas of the mind are all dukkha. Now that needs to be experienced, neither believed nor disbelieved. There's nothing to believe here, nor disbelieve. Disbelief is only laziness of the mind. I don't want to do it, so I don't want to believe it. That's one way of dealing with it. And believing it is also laziness of the mind. Okay, it's all right, the Buddha said so that I don't have to try it out myself. Neither way will get us anywhere. If we haven't found it out for ourselves, there's no way it's going to help. It's all very interesting. Wonderful psychology or whatever we want to call it. But it's meaningless if we haven't done it. So we have dukkha in those four. <clears throat> now we'll have to see why do we have dukkha? Now, the first one's already explained in the nutriments. That's our sense contact. That's already explained why that's dukkha, because of constant irritation. Buddha gave this simile of the cow, and there's constant, constantly something coming in. And after having meditated and being very quiet, we can see that better. And then we have feelings arise, pleasant and unpleasant. Well, why are they dukkha? We don't have to go into that, do we? Because who nobody likes unpleasant feelings. And we're very happy that everything is so impermanent and they'll go away again. Of course, some of them last too long, and uh, then we have to do something about it. But what about the pleasant feelings? Why are they dukkha? Well, it's quite easy to see, isn't it? They don't stay around. We have to get them all again. That's why I have said to you, if you do the jhanas, you must see the impermanence at the end. Because the pleasant feelings that arise in the jhanas, particularly in the first two, if we don't look at the impermanence, we might get the idea, oh, that's all I really want, I'm fine. As they say in Australia, I'm home and hose. So that's not going to do it for us either. So the pleasant feeling disappears. And as it disappears, we have to get it again. So we have to use our time and energy and our intelligence and our drive to get those pleasant feelings again. So they are dukkha. So what else do we have? Well, then we have the perceptions, the perceiving. And the perceptions are the ones that create our states of consciousness. 
and how many times have we already had states of consciousness which gave us great unhappiness. States of consciousness we were down in the in an abyss where it was even hard to see that there was something else except these dreadful states of mind and states of consciousness which we were having. And then, of course, after that come our mental formations. That's our thinking process. Why is that dukkha? Well, because it's constantly moving and so is, of course, the rest of it also. All of it is moving. And everything that moves creates friction. It has to. And friction creates irritation. So there cannot be any peace in that. And if you've watched your, your discursive thinking during meditation, you know already that thinking is dukkha. So there's no question about it. And so are the others. The sense consciousness, the feeling and the perception have that in common that all of them are constantly moving. And because of that, there's friction. And because of that, there's irritation. There can never be any peace. Now, obviously, while we're alive, there has to be a certain thinking process going on. But that isn't, this explanation is not to mean that we're never going to think again. It would be absurd. Nobody can do it. Buddha taught for 45 years. Obviously, he thought about what he was going to do. But what we need to know from our own inner experience is that all these khandas are dukkha so that we no longer cling to them. That's all that this is about. That we no longer feel this is me and I'm going to keep my khandas around so that me is not going to disappear. All of these right views lead in one direction only. To see that being me or thinking to be me is dukkha. Nothing but dukkha. It's not possible to find a loophole. We've all tried and are probably still trying to find nice big loopholes where we can creep out of this dukkha. One day, we're going to stop trying. That's the day that our dukkha diminishes at least by 50%. When we stop trying to find a loophole for it. So as long as we're trying to find a loophole, we dislike dukkha. And when we dislike dukkha, we've got double dukkha. But when we accept it as a one of the um, characteristics of all of existence, it just is. So what's there to dislike? The next step after that is that we realize existence is not something to cling to and crave for. This is what these pathways are all to show us. That our clinging to them, our being totally identified with these five groups, five kindness, that that creates irritation 
and difficulties for us again and again, over and over. And that all the kinds of things that we're trying to do in order to get out of these difficulties only do exactly the same thing. They make us a new difficulty. And so only when we stop believing that we are that, we are the kindness, we are our mental formations, we are our feelings, we are our sense contact. When we stop thinking like that and objectively observe them, then we will see that first of all it's not us at all, it's just something that's arising and ceasing, and secondly, it's not desirable. Not at all. The nicest thought arises and ceases, moves. Therefore friction, therefore irritation. The nicest feeling does exactly the same. No difference. Now that's when we see that. That's when our difficulties become so much less. Because we see them for what they are part and parcel of being. And when we see that as part and parcel of being, then we start doubting whether being is so desirable. Now the whole of these right views, and I only got as far as the third one, are leading in the same direction. And I think that I'll do, I'll talk about the others tomorrow. I will say one more thing about Dukkha. What the Buddha has explained here is the underlying foundation for Dukkha. The superficial Dukkha that people have <coughs> is created through that underlying foundation. So when we hear something we don't like and then become angry about that, we have identified with the sense consciousness, the hearing, and having identified with it, we own it, and therefore the me, this illusory me, is feeling hurt. There is only the possibility of being hurt when there is somebody there that it can happen to. So all these unpleasantnesses that people experience are all caught up and embedded in the five kandas as being me. It is a very important meditation subject on the inside path in addition to those that I've already explained about the body the 32 parts the four elements and old age and death it's a very important one about the mind to see the four parts of mind in meditation how they actually operate and to try and see objectively whether any one of them says, aha, uh-huh, me, or whether they just are. 
just like the parts of the body. Neither the liver, nor the heart, nor the kidneys, nor the intestines are uh, waving their head and saying, this is me. None of them. They just are parts of the body. The same with the mind. None of them will say, oh, now you found me. They just are. Now this is a very important inside method to become aware of it and in the meditation the touch contact can be a good one to start with. The touch sensation that we have in the sitting can be very, very um, uh, valuable because from that feeling is there, there's a perception of the naming and then there's a mental formation. And if you want to wait a little bit with that until an unpleasant feeling has arisen, it is even more uh, impactful. You will see quite clearly what's going on. And then you can look into those four parts of mind and see again, look again, which one is me? All of them? The one I had the moment ago or the one I'm going to have? Or this one? So if this one is unpleasant and then I move my leg or whatever it needs moving and now I'm having a pleasant feeling. So which one am I now? The unpleasant one or the pleasant one? So both. So I'm already two people. Now I'm one, I'm one person with pleasant and one person with unpleasant. But since I've already had innumerable thousands, millions of different feelings and thousands, millions of different perceptions so I must be made up of millions of people. Where is the core of that person? It's a very important way to use inside meditation. And again, as I've said before, and I will repeat it, if the mind is calm and collected, calm meditation. And then inside at the end. Particularly after the jhanas, But after any calm meditation. If the mind is distracted, inside meditation first. And then when the mind becomes a little calmer, go on the path to calm meditation. This kind of investigation is immensely more profitable than discursive thinking about the past and the future. If that's what the mind is doing, bring it back to something profitable, skillful and useful, such as this kind of investigation. A very important aspect of insight meditation. So, that is enough for tonight. If you have any questions, you can ask them now. To which one does the observer belong? Does it belong to the uh, perception? No, the observer is a mental formation. The perception is only the naming which creates a state of consciousness. But the observer is already a mental formation. Mindfulness is a mental formation. Observing is a mental formation. It's all the, the mind can do many things. And then the observer observes the mental formation. The observer observes the mental formation, yes.
it observes for that it's observing but don't make too many mirrors behind each other that doesn't work either but it knows that it's observing see the only difficulty which arises is that the observer which is watching all this what's going on says quite instinctively and impulsively this is me I'm called me I've got this name me and that's why I'm me and when with objectivity it's possible to see that that is a um, a wrong way of thinking wrong view past moment the quicker the better <laughs> yes. the state of consciousness is the same as the mental emotional state mm, no not quite uh, the mental emotional state is what arises in the mind but it can also be very much uh, influenced by our perceiving of the way we perceive um, the state of consciousness arises from that it's a result of perception and mental emotional state and then we are in the state of consciousness it's a, like a result of it yes What else? Could a mind become enlightened that has a subconscious? That has a subconscious? Is that what you said? Well, all minds have that to begin with so in order to become enlightened they all have that but the enlightened mind wouldn't have it anymore so there is a is a the pathway of purification purifies not only the conscious but also the subconscious and as the subconscious is purified enough the enlightenment is possible because the objectivity is, is a also a pure pure See, our subjectivity is impure. So, Barbara? Yes, but the purification pathway has to go on all the way to get to that path moment. Right? So the purification is on the conscious level, but it immediately also purifies the subconscious. So with that, when you, the past moment, it doesn't have conscious or subconscious, it's got nothing. It's just there. And uh, then, of course, for the Arahant, for the fully enlightened, there is nothing more to be done, but on the way there, the stream enter and the once return and non return, certainly they get some of that have it again but our purification aspect purifies that too I mean it takes a while little by little 
Anything else? We do carry around a lot of rubbish with us that we are not so aware of because we don't like to admit it. So we push it down. And then, of course, it comes up at the most inopportune times and then it gets into the conscious and then we do something very silly or very, you know, un- unexpected and wonder about ourselves. How come? I thought I was long over this, but I'm still doing it. So as we meditate more and more, the subconscious comes more to the fore and we can see it better and become conscious of it. And therefore we can get to it for purification. We have a much better handle on it then. So the meditation helps it very much. But of course sometimes uh, people don't like all this stuff coming up. So they stop again. More people stop and start than those that actually keep, keep going. That's all. Things are the way they are. Yes, much less, much less, and an enlightened one doesn't dream at all. There's nothing to dream about. It's all been done. Yes. Sorry, say that again. Yeah. Not interesting? <laughs> no? <laughs> Just a lot of mixed up stuff. Yeah, right. Oh, I see no reason why you shouldn't. I don't, uh, the Buddha didn't talk about such things at all, that one should wake up and write down one's dreams and then. Oh, is it very unpleasant? And you think that if you... And then you don't get a really good rest at night if that happens. Yeah. Well, then it might be wise to... to yeah. It might be wise to to um, uh, wake up and see whether falling asleep again you could, uh, by determination, um, say, okay, I don't really want all this, I want to sleep. But i tell you another uh, remedy for all this, you can try, uh, that by when you lie down to fall asleep, when you're ready to fall asleep, uh, do some loving kindness meditation. Uh, any old way, it doesn't matter, whichever way you like towards yourself, to the people around us, whatever, right? Uh, it also helps. The Buddha said that loving-kindness has 11 benefits. And the first three are, one goes to sleep happily, one dreams no evil dreams, and one wakes happily. So if you could do that, to see, maybe there will be quite a difference. Try that first. 
you know, and then if that doesn't work either, well, maybe you should wake up and then do it with loving kindness going to sleep again. Yes. I'm not sure how to ask the question, but you were talking about the unconscious before. Um, I wasn't really. I'm not interested in the unconscious, <laughs> but I had a question on it. The unconscious, you mean the sleeping technique? Yeah. Um, Yeah, but it doesn't involve the unconscious, not at all. No, it uh, involves the residual effects of our emotions, which have been embedded themselves have embedded themselves in a physical manifestation in the body. The residual effect of the emotions. I mean, when you when you are happy, you smile. When you are unhappy, you cry. You know, these are these are the emotions that uh, create the um, uh, physical uh, response, and these physical responses then, as you touch upon certain as- parts of the body, you may get uh, the um, the corresponding emotion that has settled there. It's quite possible, and many people do. And as you do it, it may, it is a, a cleansing, but it, uh, you know, gets all dirtied up again. So it's got to be done over and over again. It's a, it's a good method. Uh, if, uh, for mainly if the concentration is poor. It's mainly, mainly for people whose concentration is poor. So that the concentration can really uh, get uh, get uh, uh, fortified, and it's a very good cleansing, purification method. Always teach it in the shorter courses. So I believe it to be a good method. Please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments. Now think of the right effort and the good karma that you're making because of this meditation retreat. And let joy arise in your heart because of the effort and the good karma. Fill your heart with joy. And then let it overflow and fill yourself from head to toe with joy.
And now let the joy arise in your heart because the person next to you is making right effort and good karma. Experience the joy because of the other person's right effort. And then become aware that you're experiencing the joy with that person, together. And now experience a joy because of everybody's effort here. Be joyful because all the other people are making right effort and good karma. And then become aware of experiencing the joy with everybody. Come aware of that togetherness no separation Now think of your parents and have joy in your heart because of any of the good efforts they've made. Experience joy with them for anything nice that they've ever had in their life or are having now. Think of those people who are nearest and dearest to you. Let joy arise in your heart because of anything good that's ever happened to them or is happening now. Experience your joy with them. Feeling together
think of all your good friends and think of anything nice that's happened to them and let joy arise in your heart because of that and then stain the joy with them so that there's a real togetherness no separation Think of neighbors and people you work with, people you meet in shops, on the street, on your travels, anyone at all that has come into your life. Feel joy arising for any of the good things that have happened to them. that they may be experiencing now feel together with them in that joy embrace them with it Think of anyone whom you don't like. Think of anything good that's ever happened to that person. And let joy arise in your heart. Being joyful because of that person's joy. Recognize the Dukkha that happens so often and because of that feel the joy for anything good that has happened
think of all the nice things that can happen to people. Imagine people having joy because of good experiences and then have joy with them because of their joy and together with them. Let the joy from your heart reach out to people far and wide. Feeling together with them in that joy and embracing them with your joy. Hoping and wishing that there will be more for them as time goes on. Let your mind go to people right around here and then further away as far as the strength of heart and mind will reach. Put your attention back on yourself and feel the contentment that comes from having joy with others. Let the contentment fill you and surround you. people everywhere have joy in their heart.